encourage you to take your Bible and turn there as we continue our series, our short series on our great opponent. And as we've talked about in the weeks past, this actually is a very short sermon series that we've been embarking on. Uh, one Puritan preached over 260 sermons on this short passage from 10 through not, uh, 18. And so we know that we could go much deeper. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached over 50 sermons in this passage. We know that we could dig out more truth than what we're finding here. But the hope here is to move at a pace to where you can kind of connect all these things in your mind, the importance of all of these things. And remember that beginning in, chap in chapter 6, verse 10, Paul makes it clear that we all, every one of us, there are no exceptions. If you are alive and breathing, you are involved in a spiritual war. Our great opponent is not a physical opponent. He's not someone that we can touch with our hands or see with our physical eyes. Our great opponent is Satan himself and all of his many minions who do his bidding, follow his commands, and seek to undo the work which is being done in our lives and around us each and every day and through us. And I'm, I am convinced that as we go through this passage, we're learning that practically we are involved in this. So many people uh, fall into the trap of thinking, God has done everything for me to be saved, therefore I do nothing once I'm saved. The let go, let God crowd, the Keswick revival uh, descendants, those who would say, well, God does it all, He's going to do whatever He pleases, and so I just get to sit back and put it on cruise control till I reach heaven. And I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, if that is your philosophy of life, you will not make it. You will not make it. Not only will you not survive spiritually in this life, I believe, and I think the New Testament plainly teaches us, you have no hope in the next life. True believers are those who stand in the fight. And as we will see today, they wield the spirit sword of the Word of God. And they fall to their knees daily praying all prayers. They're those guarded by the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. Their feet are covered with the confidence given to them by the gospel of peace, the assurance of the gospel of peace. And their head is protected by the salvation which God has extended to them. They will endure those who are fighting in this fight will endure based on God's power and God's strength and His strength alone. And so we're in the midst of a series on a very practical uh, point of sanctification. That's why we confessed our belief about sanctification this morning. It's important you get that thought in your mind as we head into today. Sanctification is the work of God's grace in the believer's life so that the believer then works to be more and more holy as Christ is holy. That's sanctification. The work of God's grace in the believer's life so that the believer works to become more and more holy like his Father in heaven, like Christ, his Savior. In other words, sanctification is not passive only, but active. Justification is purely passive. You do nothing to save yourself. You can't do a good work which God looks at and says, for that I will add to your merit and you will be saved. That work's done by Jesus Christ alone. 
You can't be initially sanctified nor set apart. That's why the confession said you're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. How are we set apart? We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. How are we set apart? The Spirit of God is given to us. And therefore, we're marked by the number of God. Revelation says there are those who are numbered as those who follow Satan, and there are those who number and bear the number of God himself. There are those bearing 666, and there are those bearing 777. That number was set out before the foundations of the world. You were set apart and called to salvation by the Spirit of God. But now that you're set apart, you're called to work, not sit idly by and coast into the gates of heaven. If you coast, the gates of heaven are closed to you. You do not possess the Spirit of God. You will taste His wrath forevermore. That's what we're left to believe. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I'm convicted and convinced that my life must become an act of, an act of worship. An act of daily living by the call of God to fight in this holy war that we're a part of. Holy war is a term which uh, now brings out great thought in American society because of the jihadist actions of those in 2001. But holy war has been going on long before, long before 2001 or the Middle East or Israel against their opponents or the church and against the Muslims. The holy war began in heaven. It was led by a rebellious captain who thought he might be God one day. And he was cast down from that high position. And he carried with him a third of our opponents that are still fighting a war against us. The holy war is a war which is spiritual, not physical. And so we're on a crusade. We're a part of an army. And as I think about this text, I think about all of the analogies about the body of Christ. The body of Christ is called the assembly. That's the word church. And it's named that from the Mount of Mount Sinai, the foot of Mount Sinai, the people referred to as the assembly, and the New Testament apostles pick that term up and apply it to us, the church. We are the assembly of the firstborn. We're called according to his purpose. We are called royal priests. We are called a holy nation. We are known as the body of Christ. We are talked of in the family of God. We are called, adopted into this family by the Spirit of God. And we are in the middle of a wrestling match, if you didn't know that. Paul says that we wrestle, not with flesh and blood, but, with against, but against, the, again, the principalities and the powers of the air. And this is our text today. This wrestling is also a spiritual war. We are soldiers in the army of God. Not only in the family, not only called to be part of the nation or the priesthood or are we referred to as the assembly, but we are warriors. We are soldiers. And no one is given ease. No one's given rest and relaxation. This war continues from the time you become a Christian until the day you lay your head down in death. This war will not cease. So there, there's, there's no backing up here, okay? And today we're going to finish the armor of God and look at the last two things. And, and so, so many people don't see the, the second one we're going to talk about today as part of the armor, but I believe it's crucial. Look at verse 17. We talked about the helmet of salvation last week. And take the helmet of salvation. We dealt with that last week. And, here's where we pick up, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
Last piece of the armor, praying at all times. See, most people don't include prayer as part of the armor of God. And I think it's a mistake. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So first we see that our offensive weapon in the armor of God is a sword. This sword is often drawn for us in VBS, or we even cut it out of cardboard in VBS, right? Some of you got to do that. And it's this long sword, this, this sword that is, is, is just uh, something that you, in your mind, you know, because it's cardboard, you can wield it, but in your mind you think it's so heavy, how could anyone ever swing it? That's the wrong kind of sword. This sword is, that's being spoken of by Paul is a short sword. It was made by the Romans for hand-to-hand combat. This is not war at a distance. This is war up close and personal. This is you and your opponent wrestling on the ground until you are able to pull out your offensive weapon and stab it into his gut that he might die. This is a short sword. It's made for hand-to-hand combat. It's not war at a distance. It's war up close and personal. It's not, as we see, judged, thank goodness, by the Vegas Boxing Association who can miss a... Well, we won't get sidetracked, but they can miss it. Pacquiao won last night, and I don't care what anybody says. So, if you you, uh, understand his terminology... It's that kind of war. It's mixed martial arts. It's intense. And it's got one offensive weapon because none of the others do you any good. A bow and arrow does you no good. A a heavy object which takes all your strength and might to swing does you no good. You need something light and agile and that can be thrust quickly into your enemy. And it's the Word of God. The Spirit's sword. Now, as we think about this Uh, we think often about the written Word of God. And you're going to notice that today, I don't think that primarily Paul's talking about the written Word of God. The word he uses here is not logos. The word he uses here is rima. And rima was for the proclaimed Word. So what he's actually saying is when your enemy attacks you and he has you pinned, ready to kill you, your only hope is to have the Word of God in your mind and in your heart so that it might be thrust like a sword at your enemy. If it's written in the book only, and it's laying on your desk at home, and you haven't touched it in years, don't expect the wind when he gets you down. You'll have no sword to thrust. I was listening to John Piper years ago preach on this passage, and he said, there's nothing worse than a soldier running to the armor of his mind and opening where the sword is to be kept and finding nothing more than John 3.16. The only war dagger you have is for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is a great verse. But men, that verse isn't going to do a lot for you when you're fighting lust on a daily basis. When your heart is overrun by greed in your business. Now, it's going to do you a lot of good. 
If that's the only one you've got in your mind and in your heart, you will be overwhelmed in the war. Ladies, when your 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 19-year-old young man thinks he has found the love of his life, and that is rocking you to your very inner core, if the only verse you can pull up is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, there's not a lot of help and resource for you. Your enemy will kill you with fear. If you want to win this war, you better arm yourself with the whole sword. I never will forget the first time I was going through Ephesians was my freshman year in college and when I was going through it word for word with another man. And that Christmas, we went to Christmas conference. Campus Outreach has New Year's conference now. They had Christmas conference then. We went to Gatlinburg and I sat down. Bob McNabb, who had been on staff with Campus Outreach for years and was in Thailand at the time and was coming home, was teaching us about this very verse. I never will forget the first 35 minutes. He was talking to about 200 college guys. The first 35 minutes, he was quoting passages of Scripture. He, didn't, he referenced this verse, and then he said, I want to tell you what the sword of the Lord is. It's the Word of God. And he began to quote passages. 35 minutes later, he's still quoting. And he said, if you want to keep going, we can keep going. Because God has armed us with the whole Word of God, not one or two favorite verses. He then taught us about scripture memorization. He had grown up a navigator, and he had learned whole books of the Bible. Many of our women, early in our church's foundation, were able to sit under the teaching of a lady, Miss Pope, some of you remember her, who came from Mississippi, uh, God's country, and helped you understand how to memorize whole books of the Bible. You remember that? She stood up, and I know she could quote both Timothy's, Ephesians, she quote the whole book of Romans. She had it completely memorized. It was all in her mind and in her heart. Now let, what that does for you is what this passage says. Look at the passage. And the sword of the Spirit. So what we know is this sword is of the Spirit. It's not the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who wields this sword. So here's the way I understand what Paul's saying. Your mind, your heart are filled with the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, active and able to pierce to the very marrow of your bone. In your mind, your heart is saturated with these things. And in the, fi in the fight, in the battle, in the moment where your opponent thinks he has whipped you, the Spirit then directs you to the right verse, the right passage, the right section of this sharp sword, and you know this is what protects me. And so you pull that out in the war and the enemy flees. He can't stand in the presence of God's Word. Let me tell you who gives us the example in the Bible. And this is why I'm convinced this is exactly what Paul's talking about. He is not referring to the written Word. I don't believe that. Why? Because Matthew chapter 4 exists. You know Matthew chapter 4? Jesus started his public ministry. He went into the desert. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. At the end of his fast, weak in the flesh, but strong in the Spirit, covered with the Spirit of God. The text says he was imbibed, filled with the Spirit of God when he went into this fast. His great opponent and our great opponent showed up in the desert. 
Jesus, you sure are hungry. Turn those stones into bread and eat them. Your father wouldn't hold that against you. Jesus says, quote from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone. The spirit grabbed the dagger sword of Deuteronomy and stabbed the enemy. That attack ceased. He faced no more temptation to eat. Notice that? But the attack changes. Jesus, if you truly are the Son of God, he has promised that you shall be taken up on heights and cast down and will not dash your foot against a stone. Now the enemy, now you need to know this, before you start pulling daggers on Satan, he will pull them back. Because now Satan has switched tactics. From tempting him to eat bread to quoting him scripture, you realize he's quoting Psalms. That's, that's the Bible that Satan's quoting. Jesus' response is not, well, that's not what it means. Not at all. Jesus quotes back to him another scripture, a new dagger. He pulls out the sword of the Spirit, armed by the Spirit. He says, the Bible also says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Ceased that attack. Last attack. They take him out onto the brow of the hill. You can have all the kingdoms of this world if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus casts him away with the word of God on that final attack. That is our example of what Paul is telling us to do here. When you're fighting, clothed in the full armor of God, protected from sole of foot to top of head, holding the shield of faith, when your enemy, who is so powerful and strong, gets on you anyway, and he has you pinned and you think you're about to die, don't worry. God's Spirit will pull forward the sword that will send him into flight. It's our, it's our greatest weapon, is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Is it a weapon for you, or is it a novelty? What's the mind and heart look like for you? Is it filled with trivial, meaningless information? Or is it saturated with the things above? Paul said in Philippians that we were to rejoice always, that we were to pray without ceasing, and that we were to set our minds on things above. Colossians chapter 3 says we are to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated, and that's where we truly are. In that place. Romans chapter 12 says that you are sanctified by the word of God. That your mind is transformed by the word of God. And so I'm asking you, is your mind transformed? That's what Paul is telling you. You better have a transformed mind in this fight. It's good. You must have all the other armor. But you also must have the word of God. Now I want to give you your hand so you'll never forget how do we get the Word of God? Take your hand. Children, you hold your hand up. Adults, hold your hand up. You hear the Word. You read the Word. You memorize the Word. You study the Word. You meditate on the Word. You got five fingers. Never forget how 
you keep the Word of God as a sharp sword ready to be used in all life's temptations. You hear the Word of God. Sitting and hearing God's Word right here today, you are being equipped for the battle. Some of you have been equipped immensely just in this talk because you've said, always thought it was just the written Word. But now I get that. That's the, it's, it's the Word of the God in me, not just on the page. And so you're hearing the Word, you're being equipped. I not only want you to hear the word here, I want you to hear the word in home groups when we meet together in our homes beginning in the fall. You need to be there to hear the people of God talking about and questioning one another about the word of God. You need to not only do it then, but you need to do it in Bible study with friends and family around your home when the table is set. The Bible needs to be there. And you need to be reading it to your family. And they need to be hearing it. You need to hear the Word. We live in a day where you can hear the Word literally 24 hours a day for free. Listen, it does not offend me in the least when you come to me and say, I heard the greatest sermon I've ever heard this week. Really? Now, in my flesh I think, boy, I hope it was mine. But it doesn't offend me at all when you say, I was listening to John MacArthur preach. Or I was listening to R.C. Sproul. I was listening to John Piper. I was listening to Lig Duncan. I was listening, and you fill in the blank, Mark Dever, Mark Driscoll, your people. That doesn't offend me. That makes my heart glad. Because if you will have the word near to you in your mind and heart, Matt Chandler, I forgot him. My wife would be offended. I won't leave him out. And he does preach the Bible. That's an inside joke. Um, you have to hear the Word to have a mind transformed. You have to sit under the teaching of God's Word. But that's not enough. If that's all you do, if that's all you ever do, it's not enough. You must also read the Word of God. Read the Word of God. Now, what do I mean by read the Word of God? I don't mean pick and choose verses here and there and everywhere. You can go this afternoon and print off Robert Murray McShane's reading plan for reading the Bible. They have it in a, a lot of different versions, you know, where you read different things at different times. I suggest you read the plan that takes you through the Old Testament one time and the New Testament two times in one year. I'm on June 10. I'm reading, I read this morning Revelation uh, 12. I read Psalm 90. 9 through 102, I read Isaiah 42, and I read Deuteronomy chapter 15. That's my daily reading. I read every day, seven days a week. Why? Because you must not only hear the Word, but you must read the Word. You say, well, if you read that much in one day, you can't remember it all. That's not the point. If you read through it this year and next year and for the next 20 years, you'll know the Bible backwards and forwards, inside and out, Without really trying, you'll just know it. It will be like secondhand to you. George Mueller, one of the great saints, he read the Word. He began to read through the Word in his 30s. He didn't quit until he was dead at 93. At 70, he realized his pace was not quick enough, so he began to read through the Word twice as fast. George Mueller could be pricked anywhere, and the Bible flowed forth. How? Because he read God's Word continuously. If you want to be able for the Spirit to pull the right dagger at the right moment, you must hear the Word, you must read the Word. Not enough 
You got to do more. You got to memorize the word. Now, this one steps on toes. I don't like memorizing verses very much. It's not my strength. I love to read because I get my coffee and I read and I think and I love it. And people leave me alone when I have my Bible. You know, your kids, they will run in to see you and speak to you and they'll see the Bible. It's like a, a magic potion. Like, oh, shh, he's reading the Bible. Okay? That's not why I read the Bible, but that, that's their response. <laughs> but reading the Bible is not enough. Even though I don't like doing it, I try, I work to memorize. There are those who have brilliant memories. Bob McNabb, the guy I spoke of earlier, had 1,500 verses at his ready call. It's anything. And they were categorized by temptations that he specifically faced, things that he had. John Piper has a system called Fighter Verses. I recommend it to you. Get it in any edition. You say, I'm too old. You're not too old. Let me tell you, can you remember your social security number? Can you remember the phone numbers of the five closest friends that you have? That one's pushing you because you got a cell phone now. Can you remember the dates, important dates and events of your life? If you can, you can memorize Scripture. One of the ways Satan wins so that you do not have this sword is he tells you you can't do it. And so you don't try. You face confrontation over it with Satan. When you start memorizing, have you ever felt that confrontation? Yeah, you have. About day five, day six. You're studying your verse and you, you've been through it ten times this week and it's still in there. And you hear that Reminded that you're not even good at this. Just give up. What good is it really doing you? He doesn't want you to have a sword. It puts him to fight. Hear, read, memorize, study. Study the Word of God. Listen. You don't have to be a theologian trained in a seminary because you are a theologian. Any Christian, any Christian is a theologian. Every Christian is a theologian. The question is, what's informing you as a theologian? Your thoughts? The world's thoughts? Even a good preacher's thoughts? A dead guy's thoughts that he wrote down in a book? Or is it the book? Now here's where I get back on the side of the written word. You cannot make it without the written word. Notice, hearing the word, then you must read the word. You've got to have the written word to do that. Read the word. Memorize the word. You're probably going to have the written word. Studying the Word, you're definitely going to have the Word of God right here in front of you. Small pieces. You can choose to study books of the Bible. You can choose to study in your daily reading plan. You know, like you're reading through four different sections of the Bible. So you could study deeply for a week on one of those sections that you read, on one of the passages from one of those sections. It doesn't really matter how you choose your passages, but to study the Word of God and study it, inductively, not deductively. Deductive means you read, into the, you, you, you read an outline onto the Bible. Inductive is an organic process where what the Word says comes forth, not what you say the Word says or what another man says the Word says. How do you do that? You take it by pieces of language and break it down and look at definitions and do word studies and connect it across the redemptive historical line of history to Christ so you understand how it fits. You must study the Word of God. If you want to win in this war, you must study. 
And finally, you must meditate. You meditate on the Word of God. It's like you putting food in a crock pot. That's an old analogy, but it works. It's like taking a roast. You take a roast, put it in the oven at 450 degrees, cook it, get it out. It's done. Try to cut it and eat it. Most likely, no matter how much you paid for it, no matter how much you season it, it will feel like shoe leather. Roasts were not made to cook that way. Roasts were made to cook over time. So you put them in the crock pot and you let them cook. That's what amateur cookers do. That's what people who can't really cook, like me, that's what we do all the time. We can't do anything else. You put it in there, you fill it up with vegetables, it makes its own gravy, and it tastes amazing. Right? Tastes amazing. Same piece of meat. What's the difference? The time it took to cook it. The fact that you let that meat sit in its own fat juices and simmer. That tastes good. All of that toughness breaks down through that slow cooking process so that it will melt in your mouth. Meditate on God's Word. Take from your study and from your memorization parts of God's Word and think about it the rest of the day. It doesn't matter if you're working at Honda on the assembly line or if you're teaching school at Ohatchee, or if you're working in the ministry, you need to be meditating the Word of God ready at the front of your brain all the time. And don't be shocked when you do this regularly and events in your life that day match what you're meditating on. Now, why? Not because God is some, somehow changing things based on your meditation plan, but rather you're alert and aware to what's going on with, around you in a spiritual manner because your mind is covered with the Word of God. Same events would have happened if you weren't meditating on God's Word. You just wouldn't have seen them connected spiritually. But because you have the Word of God hidden away in your heart and saturated into your mind, you will be ready to fight. And Satan will be put to flight. And so we're thankful that Paul instructs us that the Word of God here is a sword to be used in this hand-to-hand -hand conflict. We're not going to have time to get to prayer. That's okay. We'll get there eventually. Let me further encourage you, end by encouraging you with this. The spiritual life is a hard journey. Christianity is not a time for you to sit back and enjoy the reward. That's not what the Christian life is. We will enjoy the reward. But that's when we receive it, finally. Whether that be at death or whether that be at His return. Paul said, as an old man in, in ending his life in prison, I run the race. I kept the course. I finished the fight. I am reaching for the prize which is laid up for me in glory. I'm straining for the finish line. Christian, I don't care if you're 70 or 7. This fight 
is a difficult daily fight. But there's hope. There's hope because it is the sword of the what? Spirit. Some of you just in this passage have said, I'm defeated. I'm beat. I can't do this. I don't have time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the mental capacity. Well, it's good that it doesn't matter. God never called you to a certain IQ nor a certain schedule. He did equip you with the Spirit. What you think and what you convince yourself is impossible is not impossible with God. I don't care, men, I don't care if you work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I, I, don't, I don't care if you have an IQ of 70 or 60. God will and can equip you for this journey. He does it with His Spirit. The Spirit of God knows no IQ. He has no limit of time. He is not scared of this fight. You have him inside you. Fight. Fight. Let me encourage you with that. And let me encourage you with this. Most of us are cowards. Just be honest. Most of us are immature cowards. Spiritually. We're not fighting, not because we can't, but because we choose not to. We're hoping to go incognito. We're hoping to cruise through. I just want to end by warning you, you can't cruise through. You can't deceive God. You can't get by in that manner. You will fight or you will die. There's no middle ground. You will fight or you'll die. So let's fight. Let's fight by the Spirit of God that He has gifted us with, and let's put on the whole armor of God. Men, let's lead our families this way. Let's lead our families.